Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. In this last edition of Room Now Live 2023 replays, we're going to present a session on rheumatoid arthritis called Decisive Therapeutics. In this session, we've got three leaders in the field who talk on very relevant subjects. The kingpin of rheumatologists and certainly of methotrexate, Dr. Joel Kremer is going to give us a 50-year perspective on methotrexate. Second, Janet Pope is going to give us a challenging session on myths and realities in rheumatoid arthritis. And lastly, the resurgence of biosimilars needs to be addressed by the king of biosimilars himself, Dr. John Kay from UMass. He's going to talk about biosimilars being back on the agenda each of these lectures was 30 minutes long, uh, but we're going to present excerpts from that from those lectures in this Tuesday Night Rheumatology for your pleasure. You can go to the website or our YouTube channel to look at these lectures individually, the whole lecture. And also, be sure to catch the Q&A panel at the end, 30 minutes of Q&A with those three experts. Hope you enjoy. Tune in this week and listen to our ULAR coverage live from Milan. Bye. We've been studying methotrexate forever. The oncologists, before we even started methotrexate, said it was the best studied drug the world has ever seen. And we've contributed another 10,000 studies. We, know, we should know what we're doing with this drug. Controlled studies on everything by itself, with the addition of other DMARDs, with biologic DMARDs, with everything on that slide, and has become our anchor drug. So I did a bunch of long-term studies. I did a bunch of other studies with methotrexate. Um, as I say, we have studied this drug, so we should know what we're doing. And I'm moving along, as you can see. <clears throat> methotrexate and biologics. Uh, most biologics work better with methotrexate. And there's a variety of reasons for that. There's only one biologic, tuscalizumab, in which people have attempted to taper methotrexate successfully, but you have to be careful. Triple therapy. Raise your hands if you use a lot of triple therapy. Okay, I see a few hands. We did, with a denominator of 50,000, we did a survey and we found 300 patients on triple therapy. And of the 300, 150 had deceded, mostly because of sulfasalazine. I'll have a little bit more to say about that. But you can, you can combine methotrexate with a bunch of things. Uh, Quiz question. I thought this was going to come later. All right. How would you treat a patient with methotrexate who was on methotrexate 17 and a half milligrams weekly with an inadequate response at a DMARD, DC methotrexate, and start a biologic or targeted DMARD, switch to split dose methotrexate, switch to sub Q methotrexate, uh, both C and D are correct.
Yeah, good. Both C and D are correct, and we'll talk about that. Oh, I just used up half my time. <laughs> this is a slide that I have several times in this talk. And what it shows is <clears throat> when you use Metatrix 8, orally or sub-Q, it peaks within hours. By 24 hours, it should be below 0.05 micromolar, which is basically unmeasurable. If the level of methotrexate is sustained beyond that level, you're in trouble. And we'll talk about it. I want you to know all this biochemistry, but let's go over it quickly. Reduced folate carrier actively uh, takes up methotrexate as well as leucovorin, folinic acid. Once in the cell, methotrexate is polyglutamated with FPGS, and it's the only the polyglutamated form of methotrexate which is retained long term. And methotrexate is essentially a prodrug. It is this form of methotrexate which inhibits target enzymes. Why is it important to know about polyglutamates? Uh, because they accumulate slowly and they dissipate slowly and it's only the polyglutamate level which gives you a therapeutic or a toxic response. Here is a cartoon of addition of polyglutamate moieties to methotrexate. This occurs over about six months to reach steady state, as we will see. So here is inhibition of thymidylate synthase, acar transformylase, methotrexate, the prodrug, methotrexate polyglutamate. 92-fold the polyglutamate, greater inhibition of the, the target enzyme with the polyglutamate form, 238-fold with the polyglutamate form here. So don't think of methotrexate as anything but a prodrug. It's a prodrug. The median time, Linda Dalrymple showed this, uh, the steady-state methotrexate accumulation was about six months. The predominant species was PG3, three glutamic acid moieties. <clears throat> so what does that mean? You have a patient on methotrexate for a month, or six weeks, let's say, who's on 17 and a half milligrams. You want to get them to a therapeutic value, and we'll talk about it. Do you wait six months to, for the methotrexate polyglutamates to reach steady state? Well, if you really, if methotrexate was the only drug you had, you would wait six months, because that's how long it takes to reach steady state. However, we're all impatient. And I only got 25 minutes for that. Yeah, we're all impatient. And the idea is, let's get methotrexate to what is probably a changing level of methotrexate into cellular polyglutamates that gives us a what should be a therapeutic value. We don't wait for the full effect. This is what I observed when we published long-term effects of methotrexate. Uh, this is time and months, prospectively captured, and it so happens that you start to see a plateau at six months. 
This was only methotrexate, corresponding with the polyglutamate story. Not only that, when you stop the drug, which we're now doing for short periods, it takes about four weeks for the elimination half-life of the methotrexate polyglutamates. So the time course of methotrexate accumulation and decrease corresponds with the previously reported time course of methotrexate efficacy. Methotrexate is such an interesting drug. If you use it with a drug like infliximab, it will inhibit antichimeric antibodies. In fact, you can measure the, the uh, level of methotrexate in RBCs. It's called RBC methotrexate polyglutamates. The higher the level of methotrexate RBC polyglutamates, the lower the level of HOC is, the greater the therapeutic value of the infliximab. So we're giving vaccines and we're holding methotrexate now for two weeks. Why? Because when you give a vaccine, obviously you're giving it parenterally. It, uh, it's, a, it's a neoantigen. And methotrexate will prevent an adequate therapeutic humoral response to the neoantigen. So hold it for two weeks. Is two weeks magic? I don't know. Nobody knows. Could be a week. But don't hold it for a month because of what we saw, how quickly the polyglutamates uh, are lost. Four weeks. Methotrexate and peglodicase. I can never give peglodicase because there are always antibodies. But again, give methotrexate with peglodicase and you inhibit the antibodies to peglodicase. Similar to the way it works with infliximab. What about using methotrexate with other CSDMRs? I'm not going to talk about cyclosporin. Hydroxychloroquine, I always use Plaquenil. Hydroxychloroquine with methotrexate. I love the drug independently, but what happens is hydroxychloroquine, independent of its therapeutic value, will increase the AUC of methotrexate. It also inhibits the conversion of methotrexate to 7-hydroxymethotrexate. So you get increased levels of therapeutic methotrexate when it's given with hydroxychloroquine. Sulfasalazine, one of the reasons I asked about triple therapy. If you give sulfasalazine with methotrexate, two antifolds should really work. However, sulfasalazine inhibits the uptake of methotrexate at the RFC at the reduced folate carrier. Radiographs are improved with methotrexate not nearly to the extent of biologic agents. Why do we use methotrexate weekly? Why not Monday and Thursday? Why not? Why weekly? What, what is that? Is that dogma? Well, it turns out that rapidly dividing cells in the oral and gut mucosa, when exposed frequently to a dose of methotrexate that inhibits their replication, you will cause toxicity. So we give it so we can avoid those nuisance and very often more than nuisance toxicities in rapidly dividing cells. Remember this slide? So if we were to do this, twice a week, 
all the rapidly dividing cells in this AUC, in the mouth, the gut, the bone marrow, would be severely impacted. What determines methotrexate toxicity if the tail of this again goes out beyond 0.05 micromolar, uh, you're in trouble. Anything that, that prolongs the terminal half-life of methotrexate will give you that trouble. So what prolongs the half-life of methotrexate? It's 100% excreted via the kidneys. So any renal impairment, whether it be pre-renal azotemia with CHF, dehydration, or even change of NSAIDs has been associated with methotrexate toxicity. <clears throat> Oral versus sub-Q. We found in a study we did <clears throat> way back that if you switch if you study oral and subcumethotrexate baseline, and then you do it again at six months, and you increase the dose to 15 to 20 milligrams and compare oral with sub-Q, that the bioavailability, the ratio of what's absorbed orally to what's absorbed parenterally, decreases by 30% when you get to 15 milligrams. So that's a problem. You could be giving someone 20 milligrams orally in a single dose. They may be seeing 14 or 15 milligrams equivalent of methotrexate. Here's a study done by Johan Braun, and he double-blind, he gave patients who were randomized. Sub-Q versus oral methotrexate. Sub-Qs did better. They got full bioavailability. Um, these are enzymes which are targeted by folate antagonists. They are enzymes in every nucleated cell of the body. Um, there are SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, associated with each one of these enzymes. And if we were to do genetic analyses of everyone in this room, the distribution of our SNPs for these enzymes would be all over the place. And that's relevant because we're giving you a drug which is highly dependent uh, on the sensitivity of these enzymes for its therapeutic value and efficacy. Uh, and so dose escalation studies uh, in this one study, higher dosage was not always associated with greater efficacy because if you up the dose orally, you may not be absorbing it. Can you stop methotrexate? We've already talked about that. Uh, we withdrew methotrexate but before it was known how soon or if you would flare. We, we, after about six months, we got identical appearing placebo methotrexate. And we randomized patients to continue to methotrexate or to get placebo. Turns out that everyone on placebo flared at four weeks. And then they were able to regain uh, their therapeutic value. So what we do when we use it with uh, uh, pegloticase is we hold it here. It's probably in flux, but it's not a level of methotrexate polyglutamates, which uh, impairs efficacy. 
This was the result of that double-blind study. Everyone flared. Uh, you have a patient who's stable in methotrexate who you wants to get off methotrexate. You would like to get them off methotrexate. So we looked at every other week dosing, and this was published in ANR. Turns out in our study, every other week dosing, 52% of the patients were able to remain on every other week for six months. In a subsequent study, they did much better. 90% of the patients were able to remain on every other week. So of course you can lower the weekly dose. Consider every other week. But the problem with every other week is patients forget. Because I did say I talk about outcome measurements with some degree of face validity. So which is worse? A, the patient's CDI 19. B, their CDI is 19. And C, the answer is it depends. So the first patient, A, has two swollen, two tender, but MD global is seven. That's pretty high. Patient global is seven. Second patient, five swollen joints, two tender. MD global is four. Patient global is eight. So which is worse? A, B, or C? So we'll have have you vote. Um, okay, so B, that's really interesting. Um, we'll see what happens with uh, people. Uh, there's more than one right answer here, I'll just give you that. There is not a right answer. I think it really depends. Okay, so nobody says A, um, but we have B where they've got, I think the MD global gets a bit higher. I think that I, I can't remember which order I gave them to you in, but one has more swollen joints, tender are about the same, and uh, MD Global is different. Okay, so um, I think it depends. So it is a myth. So another lie I've been told is a swollen joint is a swollen joint. Well, of course it is. But I think you might beg to differ there. You can see the IP of the thumb, the second MCP, the second PIP. By the way, she has a second DIP too, but I can't help that. This lady does have RA and occasionally uh, DIPs are involved. But I would call her three joints there on that hand. Look at the one joint here though. I don't know, you. I would say the, the second person with a giant shoulder and an arm attached is probably far worse off. The other thing is if you do a 28 joint count, what about the ankles and the feet? So I think knowing a score, you have to look at the components. It's not an HbA1c equivalent, unfortunately, in rheumatology. So the next myth, I mean, if you saw my Twitter page, you would think that I can't get anyone in remission, but I don't take their pictures. I honestly don't take their pictures. Lots of people are in remission. But there's a myth we can get our, most RA patients into sustained remission. We're to treat to a target of low disease activity, Boolean remission, the clinical definition, a low DAS, a low CDI, a low SDI. So in early rheumatoid arthritis, these are data from our CATCH cohort that we do need to publish someday, but what we showed was that DAS remission um, or DAS low disease activity, and we went up every a couple years that our cohort's been going on looking at the new patients, so whether you were um, diagnosed and entered uh, 10 years ago, 8 years ago, et cetera, 6 years ago, and you can see that we kept getting more and more people into low disease activity or remission, but we're hitting a wall. We're hitting a wall maybe around DAS um, 70%, 72%. And our cohort with very little in these data, very little biologic pe penetration, we have pretty good remission. And I think we know how to count joints in Canada. It's uh, that we don't do anything too fancy usually. We just do a joint count like most people do. 
uh, but we're hitting a ceiling effect. And some of it might be the scores, the intrinsic problem with having chronic residual pain, fibromyalgic RA, etc. And some of it is our, our drugs, we do hit a wall over time. So these are data showing in our early arthritis cohort that we can get if we look at a very tight definition. So SDI, which is your tender joint count, swollen joint count, MD global, patient global, and a CRP. If we add that and get less than or equal to 3.3, so zero swollen, one tender, a bit of a CRP or a patient global of one kind of thing, we got 55% of our patients into that remission, which is virtually true remission, I think, 55% over a year. So that's like pat yourself on the back. I mean, if that was your report card of your kid, 55% you wouldn't be too happy with, by the way. But 55% is the highest we have in the literature to date. But the next year... And the year after, we lost some of those remissions. So if we look at the 55%, looking two years out, we've lost half of them in remission. And these should be the easiest to treat. This is our window of opportunity. These are literate people who are usually adherent because they agree to do their forms and come into being an observed in a study. So these people have probably a leg up on our regular patients because they actually know they're being observed and they want to probably do better. So we can't get people into remission, almost half of them we can't, even an early RA, and then we can't sustain them when we get them there, unfortunately. What about an established RA? An established RA, this is not a tight definition of remission. If you look at SDI is tighter or Boolean, even tighter. But if you look at a DAS less than uh, 2.6, you can get, again, a failing grade of patients in remission in established RA. But it's not very good. So either we have to change our scores, change what we're trying to get to, or be more rational. We need biomarkers and science to tell me what to do and how to keep people well when they are. We also know there's a ceiling effect in treatment. So the ACR or DAS change responses, um, they look fairly similar between each drug. They're not identical by any means. And within a group of individuals, a patient might respond to everything and another patient might respond to only two of five options. We just don't know. So there's a ceiling effect. So another myth is that the treatment selection and the order of treatment in RA is rational. I think, again, we have to learn from oncologists that if you have a certain phenotype, you'll get a certain kind of treatment, such as I mentioned earlier, breast cancer. So this is a slide I stole from someone's slide deck. Thank you, whoever's slide deck. I took a picture of it. But anyway, it's showing that there are different sets of people with RA. And the easiest way to look at it um, as a clinician, not a, a translational researcher, is that there could be more, but there's about three groups of people. They have B cells that look like formed uh, lymph nodes, not so common, but can occur. They have lots of B cells, but not forming lymph nodes, or they're really fibrotic. And the really fibrotic group, it's almost, not quite, but almost one-third, one-third, one-third. That fibrotic group is recalcitrant to change. They usually don't get into remission as much. They don't get sustained remission. And I don't have a clue who they are, and none of us really do. But if we did, maybe we'd have a more rational approach on um, certain groups of drugs and certain patients. So the next myth, and I can, I'm on the ULAR guidelines, so I can, um, I can say it's a myth. I'm not on the ACR guidelines, but I did review them. So, um, ULAR and ACR guidelines of monotherapy with methotrexate are the best initial treatment. 
In fairness, ULR doesn't give monotherapy. They say give glucocorticoids, bridge and get rid of them if you can, as fast as you can, and use methotrexate in the poor prognosis. And RA guidelines say use methotrexate. Well, we just heard Dr. Kramer say that he loves to use hydroxychloroquine with methotrexate. And I think I was one of maybe two people that said, oh, I love triple therapy despite the sulfasalazine. So, it is true that if we want to fail, we should start with methotrexate monotherapy. So, 70% of the time, remission is not achieved in methotrexate monotherapy and poor prognosis, active early RA. 70% of the time, you will fail if we're going to target remission. And that's true on all those trials I put there, because when I first used to say this statement, everyone said, you're just making it up. So I actually had to get references for what I'm not making up. Um, but if we use combination therapy, whether it was combination with a uh, TS uh, DMARD, a, a CS DMARD, a, a bio DMARD, Two drugs are better than one in early RA, and I'm talking about poor prognosis, seropositive or erosions, lots of swollen joints. So it's really interesting that we have guidelines that say you should fail and then move on. I guess you could say the other side is it's an inexpensive drug and one-third of the time you'll pass, but I'd rather pass two-thirds of the time or, frankly, three-thirds of the time. So let's do our next question, and Dr. Kramer might agree with this or not. So this is another vote, true or false. Folic acid, folate supplementation reduces cytopenias and RA patients using methotrexate. So let's uh, vote on that. So it's either true or false, and I hope you get the option of true or false on this. Um, and you might not get the option. No option, maybe. I'm watching my time. Oh, the Wi-Fi is off. Okay, let's do a vote then, but that means we don't have... Okay, so who says folic acid supplementation, however you love to give it, I don't care how you give it, but who says that it reduces cytopenias and RA using methotrexate? So we have uh, tr some trues, and who says false? And who says, I couldn't care less, I use it anyway? Um, I, I, I can say that, la that last one. Um, okay, let's do one more poll, then I'll give you some answers. Folic acid supplementation should be co-prescribed with methotrexate and RA. I didn't care about the day, but should be. Who says true? And who says false? And who says, I don't know? Um, okay, so I wonder if some of the data of methotrexate, although in the, the days gone by it was lower dosing, but I wonder if some of the data was before folic acid was in everything we ate and drank in North America. Folic acid is in your kids' lucky charms. They are magically delicious, and they actually have folic acid in them. It's in beer, I think, now, so is thiamine. It is in virtually everything because we don't want neural tube defects. And thank you, the online people said, should be co-prescribed 95%. So I wanted to do this as a lie, I've been told, and say it really doesn't make much difference if my patients eat the very elderly, bit of renal impairment, maybe, and the childbearing uh, potential patients, maybe. But... I'll tell you, I couldn't really, uh, I couldn't really tell you that that's true because there are two systematic reviews, and um, interestingly, there, there's some good things about uh, folic acid supplementation. So a good thing is it seems to reduce, interestingly, GI side effects. It might or might not reduce um, other mucosal problems such as having sores in your mouth. There are no data whatsoever that it reduces cytopenias, interestingly, in all those RA trials, zero data. 
But interestingly, it might reduce transaminitis. And there is, um, in one of the systematic reviews, there's two um, out. I'll just give you the reference for the second one while I'm talking. Um, it, uh, it might increase the durability of use. So that's the main reason why I would use folic acid. I couldn't care less what folic acid, at what dose, and on what day. So uh, Joel, on, uh, when we talk about this, I don't know if you're going to agree with that or not. Uh, folinic acid is really expensive, far more expensive um, than it should be. So I don't use that except for to bail people out. Um, okay, I think, um, am I over now? Am I on the over side or the under? Okay, I'm good, good. Okay, oh man, whoa. Okay, um, tr uh, true or false, we don't need to inject swollen joints at the onset of RA. So um, for those in the room voting, who would vote um, that that's true, we don't need to inject? Guidelines don't, okay, we got some. And computers back up, okay, and false. All right. Um, so I thought I, I wanted to do this one because I think we underplay the, this is my opinion, I think we underplay the value of joint injections, particularly in early disease. So two-thirds are saying we don't need to inject and one-third is saying, well, maybe we do or it's not true. So this is an old study, randomized control trial on joint injections in RA trials. You're lucky if you hit 50 people, so this is a, a normal size trial and this kind of thing. But it was a nice trial, so I thought I'd bring it up even though it's old data from uh, 2014 in a journal you've never heard of, but it was kind of nice. The patients got methotrexate and sulfasalazine and half are randomized to inject every swollen joint at onset and half not to inject any joints. So they all got double therapy and you can see that um, three months after the injections and you could say, well, the injections are wearing off then. Yeah, so that's probably a good time to look. They're not going to last for six months probably. But the mean DAS that started the same went far lower, clinically relevantly lower, like as though this is a very good drug, by the way. The ACR20, 100% versus 84% in the two groups, so the injections did better. ACR50 was 3 to 1 getting it, so 60% in the injection group, and ACR70 was none in the double therapy, and one-third about in the uh, double therapy plus injections. So because I have done reviews in this area, it has changed my practice into giving uh, injections. Um, so true or false, it is better to give oral or intramuscular glucocorticoids than to inject 6 to 12 joints in active RA. So let's vote on that. Um, true, it's better, it's a lot easier. And I don't know what your fee schedule is, but for us, it's probably not worth our time to inject six joints, six to 12. But let's say, oh, this is interesting. Um, so we have, um, we might have, again, a 70-30 split there, or two-thirds, one-third. So people are saying, yeah, I'd rather just give them an intramuscular, the Medrol pack, or whatever you guys call it here, or giving um, an, a short course of oral prednisone. And in Europe, they would certainly give a short course, which becomes a long course of oral prednisolone. Um, so let's just see one more uh, study before we call it quits. So this is a randomized control trial, polyarticular inflammatory arthritis. By the way, they were rheumatoid arthritis patients, 69 in the whole, like two groups. And you had to have active RA with six or more swollen joints, six to 12. And you got intraarticular injections on that whole six to 12, or you got, and this is where you might uh, complain about the methodology, you got 120 milligrams of intramuscular uh, medrol, solumedrol, medrol. 
So just if you're going to do a bit of math here, if you're doing big joints, you're getting a lot more glucocorticoids in those joints being injected than one intramuscular. But again, uh, the data are the data. So they had interestingly less side effects with intraarticular steroids. Maybe the patients were afraid to complain and never came back, but less side effects. But the intraarticular steroid group, they looked at one week. They were better, twice as many were better, have an ACR 20. They looked at four weeks, again, almost twice as many were better, but they looked um, at an ACR 50 at four weeks as well. And it was a two-to-one ratio. And you could say, well, what does it matter? We just heard that maybe methotrexate takes six months to be in steady state. But it actually is in steady state. Um, it actually gives effect. Methotrexate does in two to six weeks. And that's why if you hold it for more than two weeks, some people will flare. So you could say, well, why bother? My drugs are going to kick in. But if I were the patient and I had to go to work, I would like you to fix my joints up. Because I might buy in falsely that the drugs I start at the same time are actually highly effective, such as the methotrexate. So I do have patients coming back and say, Dr. Pope, you were right. You said I'd be all better the night I took methotrexate. And it's like, I did not say that. I said, I'm going to inject every joint and then you'll be all better and then methotrexate will kick in. So we just have to think about that. So I think that we have to challenge some beliefs in rheumatoid arthritis treatment um, from pre-RA to early RA to established RA. I think we have to challenge our outcome measurement scores, especially when they might and within an individual lack face validity. Um, I think we need a better profiling of patients. That's certainly not ready for prime time yet, but we have to learn from the oncologist. There's the AMP group here, and there's the group in uh, UK and multiple areas now in Europe who are doing biopsies of the synovium to try to teach us um, what might uh, become biomarkers over time uh, more easily available. And then I think there's a large gap. The, there's a lot of unmet need for our patients, and I haven't even talked about the patients, uh, PROs, et cetera. We have to learn why a patient has a secondary loss of response and what order to use drugs. Approval of a biosimilar by a regulatory agency requires A, comparable efficacy demonstrated in the disease for which the reference product is approved, B, equivalent efficacy demonstrated in all diseases for which the reference product is approved, C, equivalent pharmacokinetics demonstrated in the disease for which the reference product is approved, D, equivalent safety in comparison to its reference product, or E, demonstration of interchangeability with its reference product. This is a complex question, but I'll talk about the answers after you vote. People are changing their mind. Well, the correct answer is only 12, 13 percent uh, equivalent pharmacokinetics demonstrated in the disease for which the reference product is approved. So the FDA guidance on demonstrating biosimilarity talks about a totality of the evidence approach to reduce residual uncertainty. You start off with a very robust assessment of structural and functional characterization of the biosimilar candidate in comparison to the reference product. They undergo over a hundred different analytical and functional assays. This is then followed by a small non-clinical evaluation, possibly in animals for toxicity, but that is reduced as much as possible. And then the molecule goes into human pharmacokinetic studies, and if there's a biomarker available, such as for an insulin biosimilar glucose pharmacodynamic studies. Clinical immunogenicity is assessed throughout, and then there's at least one clinical trial 
conducted in a disease which is most sensitive to detecting potential differences between a biosimilar candidate and the reference product, and then post-marketing uh, information is gathered. So the FDA says that it intends to use a risk-based totality of the evidence approach to evaluate all available data. They look at all of these data together in totality and information submitted in support of the biosimilarity of the proposed product. They say that the need for additional studies at each step in this progressive approach will be determined by the degree of residual uncertainty that remains at each step regarding the similarity of the products. So, for example, for an insulin biosimilar, if the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic studies establish biosimilarity, there might be no need for a clinical trial. And as there's more experience gathered with biosimilarity evaluation, uh, the extent of the evaluation may be lessened. So the general principles of demonstrating biosimilarity are that the biosimilar has been shown to be highly similar to the reference product in extensive comparative analytical studies. So the biosimilar has to demonstrate similar efficacy and safety compared to the reference product, as I mentioned, in pharmacokinetic pharmacodynamic and immunogenicity studies and in at least one clinical trial, and no differences are expected in safety or efficacy between an approved biosimilar and its reference product, and because we have extensive clinical experience with the reference product in all of the indications for which it has been approved, and a biosimilar is now shown to be like another batch of the reference product, albeit made by a different manufacturer, Clinical efficacy and safety have already been demonstrated by the reference product, so there's no need to demonstrate the efficacy of the biosimilar in all indications. One can extrapolate approval of the biosimilar candidate to all indications for which the reference product is approved without doing clinical trials in these additional indications. And that's where the financial savings in development of a biosimilar can occur. So the preclinical development of biosimilars involves cloning and production of the biosimilar candidate in a cell line to recapitulate all of the post-translational modification of the reference product and then scaling up production. And then analytical studies compare the biosimilar candidate to the reference product in terms of structure, function, biological activity, and purity. The clinical development of biosimilars consists of clinical equivalent studies, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic studies, and then at least one comparative effectiveness trial. These are data from the first published uh, clinical trial of a biosimilar monoclonal antibody, the clinical equivalent study comparing the CTP13 biosimilar candidate for infliximab to reference infliximab in ankylosing spondylitis. This study enrolled 250 patients with active ankylosing spondylitis randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive either the biosimilar candidate or reference infliximab at five milligrams per kilogram infused intravenously over two hours per dose. The loading regimen was the standard loading regimen for infliximab, zero, two, and six weeks, and then maintenance every eight weeks up to week 30. The assessment was a pharmacokinetic assessment. The ratios of the geometric uh, means of the primary pharmacokinetic parameters between weeks 22 and 30, and secondary endpoints included ACES 20 and ACES 40 at week 30, and safety, the incidence of adverse events. The primary endpoint was met. The ratio for the area under the curve tau was 1.05, and 90% confidence intervals fell within the equivalence range of 0.8 to 1.25, which is plus or minus 20% log transformed. 
the maximal concentration at steady state also met those criteria. And you can see here that at the three time points mentioned, weeks measured weeks 14, 30, and 54, the ASAS 20 and the ASAS 50 tracked very closely together. However, these were on the plateau phase of the pharmacodynamic response, uh, so these are time points at which you'd expect the two molecules to track together given the insensitivity of these clinical outcome measures to detect potential differences between drugs. In terms of safety, CTP13 and reference infliximab were comparable in terms of safety. A comparative effect in this trial uh, is shown here, an example of Samsung Bioepis' Atanercept biosimilar. Uh, when it was a biosimilar candidate, it was known as SB4, compared to reference in Atanercept in rheumatoid arthritis. Here, the study was powered for an ACR20 at week 24 with an equivalence range of plus or, equivalence margin of plus or minus 15%. So the study enrolled 600 patients who were randomized one-to-one -one patients with active rheumatoid arthritis despite methotrexate who received either the biosimilar candidate or the reference product at 50 milligrams uh, weekly subcutaneously for 52 weeks. Primary endpoint, as I mentioned, was the ACR20 at week 24. Secondary endpoints are shown here, and also the incidence of adverse events and serious adverse events for safety. Here they measured time points at early time points, as well as at the plateau phase. And you can see that the early time points, which are most sensitive to detecting potential differences between the biosimilar candidate and the reference product, track very closely together for the ACR20, ACR50, and ACR70, which you see looking from top to bottom. In terms of related treatment emergent adverse events, the Atanercept biosimilar and reference Atanercept are highly comparable, except for the injection site reactions, which were much lower, 3.7% for the biosimilar compared to 17.2% for the reference product. So a biosimilar has to be equivalent in efficacy and comparable in safety or immunogenicity, but it can be superior in terms of safety or immunogenicity and still be biosimilar as long as it is not superior or inferior in terms of efficacy. So interchangeability. The FDA, want, there, the United States Congress uh, put together this uh, designation of interchangeability as part of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, but it wasn't until 2017 that the FDA came up with draft guidance for how to achieve this uh, designation of interchangeability. And to do that, a sponsor must show that the proposed interchangeable product first is biosimilar to the reference product. So it first has to be approved as a biosimilar, and then that it can be expected to produce the same clinical result as the reference product in any given patient and in all of the reference product's licensed conditions of use. And for a biologic product that's administered more than once, the risk in terms of safety or loss of efficacy of alternating or switching between the biologic product and the reference product is not greater than the risk of using the reference product without a switch. So the study design that was proposed was a lead-in period of treatment with the reference product followed by a randomized two-arm trial comparing a switching arm to a continued treatment arm, a non-switching arm, with at least three switches with each switch crossing over to the alternative product ending up on the biosimilar in the switching arm. So this is the schematic diagram. All subjects are on the reference product and then they're randomized either to the non-switching arm or the switching arm where they have switches, three switches back and forth. They have an adequate washout and then pharmacokinetic endpoint sampling occurs and they end up either on the 
biosimilar candidate, or I'm sorry, the approved biosimilar, the interchangeable biosimilar candidate in the switching arm, or they remain on the reference product in the non-switching arm. The primary endpoints for such a study have to be pharmacokinetic endpoints because those are much more sensitive to detecting potential differences than are the clinical endpoints. So area under the curve tau and for subcutaneous molecules, the maximal concentration at steady state. And these are subjected to the standard pharmacokinetic equivalence range of 0.8 to 1.25. Secondary endpoint includes other pharmacokinetic parameters, safety, immunogenicity, and efficacy. And they suggested that U.S. licensed reference product has to be used as a comparator unless there's a bridging study between a non-U.S. comparator and the U.S. product. Post-marketing data is also included. So the first interchangeable biosimilar was approved in July of 2021, an insulin glargine biosimilar. And then uh, Behringer Ingelheim subjected its adalimumab biosimilar to a switching study compared to reference adalimumab in patients with chronic plaque psoriasis. And this has been published now in the American Journal of Clinical Dermatology, and it follows the FDA interchangeability study design. And what they found were that the area under the curve tau and the maximal concentration between weeks 30 and 32 fell within the predefined equivalence range of 0.8 to 1.25. Also, efficacy was shown to be highly similar, with PASI scores for both arms being highly similar. The immunogenicity was highly similar, and safety, again, was comparable. So this molecule was approved as the first interchangeable biosimilar monoclonal antibody in October of 2021. But it's not yet available because there's only one adalimumab biosimilar that's been marketed so far. Ranibizumab EQRN is the first interchangeable biosimilar that was approved by the FDA without switching studies. This is a vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitor, and because it's injected intraocularly, the manufacturer argued that the pharmacokinetic, systemic pharmacokinetics would be irrelevant to what's going on in the eye, and hence it was approved both as a biosimilar and as an interchangeable biosimilar initially without having to undergo a separate second stage uh, approval process. Switching to the economic aspects to conclude this talk, the average sales price includes the discounts and rebates that are provided to PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, and CMS posts these quarterly. And I've plotted for infliximab reference product in blue, infliximab DYYB in orange, and infliximab ABDA, the other biosimilar infliximab in gray, uh, the average sales prices. And what you can see here is that during the first two quarters of its release, the biosimilar infliximab, the first biosimilar infliximab was priced about $200 higher per 100 milligram vial than the reference product, but that quickly changed. And then in the first quarter of 2018, when the second biosimilar infliximab was released, you can see that there was competition and all of the infliximab prices dropped at a more rapid rate. Interestingly, during the last three quarters, the average sales price of the second biosimilar infliximab, the one in gray, has gone up higher than both uh, the reference product and the other infliximab. This is due to loss of discounts and rebates. There are now eight 
adalimumab biosimilars that have been approved by the FDA, and they're all going to be launched this year. AbbVie reached agreements with multiple developers which forestalled market entry in the United States until this year, whereas they'd been released in Europe and other countries as of October 2018. Uh, AbbVie granted a license to each of these companies, so AbbVie gets uh, royalty for every sale of uh, the biosimilar adalimumab. It's sort of like a Kevin O'Leary deal on Shark Tank. Uh, so in July, we're going to have six adalimumab biosimilars that are released, and then finally Sandoz's uh, biosimilar adalimumab is going to be released in September. The adalimumab sales have been forecasted to slump next year, so these have reached over $20 billion a year as of 2022. In 2023, they're estimated to drop to about uh, only $10 billion or $8 billion, and then in 2024, they're going to drop even further. Uh, the growth in sales of the adalimumab biosimilars are expected to increase. In 2023, the first adalimumab biosimilar that's been released by Amgen is expected to generate about $450 million of sales, uh, and these sales are expected to grow by 2026 to over $900 million a year, and the other adalimumab biosimilars shown here are expected to grow as well. The impact of brand losses of exclusivity in the United States as of next year are going to be about $14.2 billion uh, loss of sales uh, because of loss of exclusivity for all of the biosimilar, uh, all of the drugs for which there are biosimilars. So in summary, uh, all biologics are subject to variability, drift, and evolution, both reference products and biosimilars. A biosimilar is highly similar to its reference product without clinically meaningful differences. Rigorous analytical methods must demonstrate their degrees of similarity, including structural, physical, chemical, and biological analysis, safety, purity, and potency. Clinical trials have to demonstrate equivalence of the biosimilar to its reference product, both in clinical and pharmacokinetic studies. The interchangeability designation generally requires additional studies with multiple switches between the biosimilar and the reference product, and the availability of biosimilars is expected to result in significantly lower spending on bio-originators. 